I'm Frederick Curtin, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha. I'm the advocate. So, good morning. We're back. Stuff is cooking. I saw a lot of evictions in Barcelona. We had one show talk about, episode talking about evictions, but now this week it's been a lot of evictions in Barcelona. Absolutely. I was just this morning contacted by an advocate in Barcelona, and he was saying 143 evictions have just happened in the past week or so in Barcelona or a month. It's a lot. Uh, and, and the of police course, was really active. And, a- exactly. Um, yeah. And where are the people going to go? And then the numbers of the pandemic, you know, the virus is getting worse in Barcelona. So it's very worrying. And I think the shift might write a letter of concern to the government. We'll see. You should. Leilani Farah is the Global director of the shift, this new movement you kicked off since you left being a UN rapporteur on on adequate housing. So that's right. So you are the global advocate of of, of the right to housing. I'm mm-hmm. just a filmmaker. <laughs> anyway, but we together we have a show. That's good. And we, you know, we we had a lot of talks about the oat milk company. Yes, I want an update, Frederick. Hopefully. Yeah, no, it's it's I've been in doing a lot of press again this week because the story is not the story is now about the story right. uh, you know so it's like it because they've got some shit storm against them very disappointed core customers all over the world uh, and it the issue is Blackstone and then one newspaper said that a lot of Swedish banks still had money in Blackstone and one big bank yeah. actually answered no we pulled out of Blackstone and they have like quite a lot of money. And that's the bank we've been, you know, we've asked people to to write to their banks and say, please pull out of Blackstone. And this bank actually did, Swedbank. It's one of the biggest banks in the country. So that's good. That is we good news. We are making some kind of difference, my dear. That's right. Isn't that cool? Of course, and all the people who are reporting and have been watching Push, the film. That's right. But you are the, the, the star. And we're going to celebrate it with our first guest ever. Super cool. So welcome Drum to roll. Pushback Talks, Aaron Glantz. It's good to be with you. You are in San Francisco, California. Uh, normally a very sunny place. Now there's smoke hanging over your heads there. It's like scary, I guess. It's no fun. It's no fun to uh, have difficulty going outside to breathe. And it's a bit much after locking down uh, because of the coronavirus for the last six months uh, and living in the economic uh, conditions that we live in now uh, as well, uh, with 13% unemployment now in California. Oh, so yeah. um, it's, it's tough times uh, out here, uh, but happy to be talking with you. Okay. So you're here because you are a, an, an award-winning writer, investigative journalist, and you have a book called Home Wreckers. And it's out on Harper's, and it's a very important story. It's quite linked also to the story in Push. And I, I, I love this, uh, the quotes from the book. So if you don't mind, I will read about this. How, home records, how a gang of Wall Street kingpins, hedge fund magnates, crooked banks, and vulture capitalists suckered millions out of their homes and demolished the American dream. I'm glad you like reading it. That's fine. 
<laughs> you know, but it's you know, with with, with Leilani, when we've been out with with Push, we always sometimes we introduce it like a scary movie. Absolutely, it is scary, and you capture that, Aaron, with your gang of Wall Street kingpins. I love it. Also, you know, if you look at the cover of the book, it was really important uh, to myself and to my editor, the publisher, that this seemed fun. You know, the, the conditions that we face in the world are not fun at all. Uh, we are facing, uh, you know, tremendous transfer of wealth from uh, millions of people to a, a handful of wealthy interests connected to President Trump, and you profile some of these large private equity firms like Blackstone uh, in your film. But the characters, the profiteers, and the way they go about it, it is just a rich crime story. And we wanted to, we wanted to communicate to people that if they go pick up the book, uh, that it's not going to be some kind of uh, boring political treatise, that they're actually going to get into the lives and understand who's pulling off this heist, right? I mean, your film is about people being pushed out. And... And the book that I wrote is very much about the heist, about who are the people who are taking it and how did they do it. Extremely important that we keep t talking about this because, you know, when we were in San Francisco actually showing Push at this amazing uh, theater, what was the name? The Castro. The Castro. Yeah. the Castro. It was like such an amazing, and a young woman came up to me after the film and said, wow, I feel less lonely now when I've seen the film because I, she thought that Everything that happened, all her difficulties, was her own fault. But now she could see that her unfortunate life was a part of the global story. And I think your book is doing exactly the same job for people. So we have to understand it's not our fault that we are under all this stress. It's actually somebody else who, who rigged the system. Well, and here in California, we have a very active debate about whether or not we have enough housing. Do we have enough housing? The real estate interests really want to build, build, build. And one thing that uh, my book uh, is focused on, and your film as well, is pointing out that it's not only about whether or not we have enough housing, it's also who owns the housing and what are they doing with it. So if you have a large company uh, like Blackstone that uh, buys up 70,000, 80,000 homes all across America um, and then fixes the rents at very high levels and people don't have a chance to own their home, uh, then uh, then people feel squeezed. And it doesn't matter uh, if the housing is available, if all their money is going to this large private equity firm. New, beautiful skyscrapers going up that are dark at night. And then if you go look at the property record, they're all owned by this limited liability company, that liability company. They're not even owned by people. And so I think what both of us are trying to do in our different ways is kind of move away a little bit from the question of are we building enough and move over to who's controlling this most important asset, our homes. That's what you're talking about all the time, Leilani. Absolutely, and, and that global conversation has to change. Still, everywhere I go, even housing advocates are always talking, oh, we don't have enough supply. We don't have enough supply. It's like, 
are you sh- I'm always saying, are you sure? Because I'm pretty sure there's a lot of supply out there. It's that it's being built for investors, it's investor driven, and existing supply is being eaten up by investors. So that whole narrative has to change. We and and your book is hugely important in changing that conversation. And I think push the film is as well. Getting people to think about the right things right now. Yeah, we had a huge conversation, Frederick, just like uh, a few years ago here in the States after the housing bust with everyone saying we had too much housing, right? Too many suburbs, too much housing. When Mm -hmm. houses were foreclosed, nobody would buy them because we were told that we had too much housing. And now we're being told we don't have enough housing. Um, And... And so instead of looking at that question, let's, you know, take a really hard look at our system of finance. You know, who is financing people to buy housing and uh, or if not people, corporations to buy housing? And then what are they doing with it after they acquire it? Let's listen to a little clip from Push where we uh, have the the Nobel laureate uh, professor of uh, economics at Columbia, Joseph Stiglitz. Let's listen to him. A company like Blackstone or any of the big financial enterprises were the big winners in the crisis. Uh, They were the big winners in the housing market. Uh, They were also the big winners in the equity markets. It was as if the U.S. government, rather than helping the homeowners who were losing their homes, actually sided with the banks encouraged foreclosures to clean up the books, gave the money to hedge funds and and private equity firms, who then bought the, the distressed assets to make money. So it is the way that the 2008 crisis has played an important role in increasing wealth inequality in the United States and in other countries that have been afflicted by the crisis. That's a strong statement, uh, Aaron. Can you explain this little line of the U.S. government gave the money to the hedge funds? Can you explain this? This sounds like totally crazy, but what happened? What Professor Stiglitz describes uh, is that at every step of the way during this crisis, starting under President Bush and continuing under President Obama, every time the government had an opportunity to side with either the homeowners or Wall Street interests, it sided with Wall Street interests. I mean, somebody needed to feel pain. There was economic pain, and that economic pain needed to be assessed. And so every time that pain was assessed on the homeowner uh, to the benefit of Wall Street. For example, I write in the book about Steve Mnuchin, who is now Donald Trump's Treasury Secretary. Back then, he was a hedge fund guy based out of New York. And when there was a big bank failure here in California by this bank called IndyMac that made all these terrible mortgages that you've heard so much about, and there was a run on the bank with people pushing and shoving out uh, in 90-degree heat trying to pull their money out of this bank, and the bank failed, the government turned to Mnuchin, and they gave him the bank, him and his investors. Uh, they gave paid him the, the bank? He paid nothing. <laughs> They were so eager to get this failed bank off their books. Like the government ended up owning the bank. The government didn't want to own the bank. So they were so eager to give it off the, get it off the books. They just gave it to Mnuchin. Uh, he and his investors, which included George Soros uh, and Michael Dell, the founder of Dell Computer and others, uh, they agreed to put 
$6 billion in the bank, but he paid the government nothing. So it's rather like you had a junk car that you were so eager to get rid of that you just like gave it to somebody. And then they spent their own money fixing the car. Uh, but in this case, it's even worse than that because we agreed, we were so eager to get rid of this bank, we agreed to subsidize Steve Mnuchin's losses. So when he would foreclose on people, and this bank foreclosed on over 100,000 families, including uh, about 30,000 senior citizens, we actually paid his costs. We paid his uh, attorney's fees, foreclosure costs, inspection costs. And in cases where Mnuchin couldn't get as much money selling the property uh, as as he would take a loss on the foreclosure, we heavily subsidized his losses on the loan itself. And we end up paying him and his group uh, about a billion dollars uh, as he for as he forecloses on all these people. Well, I mean, it's it's mind boggling. And I, of course, go immediately to. So who was overseeing Mnuchin, his bank and the foreclosures? Like, was anyone saying, hey, wait a second, you're uh, basically rendering homeless or at least, you know, with who knows what was happening to all of these senior citizens. And like, was there anyone regulating and saying, hey, maybe you could actually try to keep those people in their homes? He had an agreement with the FDIC, which is the federal banking uh, regulators here in the States, where he was only supposed to get all this money that I was telling you about if he agreed to work with families to keep them in their homes. Um, he systematically broke these rules according to the FDIC's inspectors. Uh, but instead of punishing him in some way, he was allowed to enter into a dis, uh, consent decree where he basically promised to do better next time. One of the things I was going to ask you, Aaron, I think I've heard you talk about the actual structure. I'm just going to take us back a little bit, but the structure of these deals, and it's not just Mnuchin. It's it's Tom Barrick, for example. Col I think what's he? Colony Capital, um, and the way the foreclosed mortgages worked, the the ability to purchase them by these folks like Tom Barrick, um, was such that they were being sold en masse, like. A thousand mortgages at once, making it basically impossible for the individual to an individual family to come back and try to buy, obviously, um, and and making it just ripe for big money, big capital to move in because who can buy a thousand mortgages at one at one time? The government was worried because they had so many foreclosures all across the country. Now, we were talking before about Steve Mnuchin, right? We failed to stop his foreclosures. We also st failed to stop the foreclosures by all these other banks. And so by 2012, the country was awash in so many foreclosures, the government actually owned 200,000 houses. Just trying to figure out what to do with them. Should it uh, turn them uh, over to nonprofits? Should it turn them over to cities? Uh, should it allow former homeowners the chance to, to buy homes again? All these things were suggested. Uh, what the Obama administration decided to do instead was exactly what you're talking about. They bundled the homes together uh, a thousand at a time, and then they opened the bidding. And they said, you know, it's a fair process because everyone has an equal opportunity to bid. Well, yeah, everyone has an op equal opportunity to bid if they can afford to buy a thousand homes at a time. 
So they end up selling them at a really steep discount. Uh, Tom Barrick, uh, Donald Trump's very good friend, the head of Colony Capital, he gets one of the first deals buying about 1,000 homes across Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and Phoenix for 30 cents on the dollar. Um, and then he could turn around, uh, rent them out for high rents because prices never went down, and basically he's printing money. And that is the way all these companies looked at it. Uh, they also um, showed up at every uh, foreclosure auction. And Tom Barrick, and I write about in the book, he sent teams, he said, I sent teams of kids literally with bags of cashier's checks to these auctions. So, you know, people like me who middle class journalists, um, you know, I have the wherewithal to buy my own home, um, but I need a mortgage. I need a loan from a bank. I can't just show up at a property auction with a cashier's check for $500,000. So, um, so when people talk about a lack of supply, it's because these actors with these bags of cashier's checks, they cornered the supply before, you know, people like you and me were able to even think about buying. So when, when Stiglitz talks about the government siding with the banks, it's a, it's a true story, siding with the financial industry. 2008, uh, we were told, oh, we can't afford to save people's homes. And the reason we couldn't afford it was because we made the homeowner feel the financial pain and we gave the subsidy to people like Steve Mnuchin and Tom Barrick. And to Blackstone. And to Blackstone. Yeah. Blackstone also buys big at these property auctions. When they finally flipped out of the company, uh, they had almost 80,000 homes in their portfolio. And uh, as Leilani, uh, uh, I saw her tweet recently, they're now getting back in it uh, with the coronavirus pandemic. They just... Uh, invested $300 million in Tricon, which is another one of these big corporate landlords. And they're also buying uh, mobile homes in, in Florida. That's right. That's right. We just read that. And student housing in the UK. One of the things that I find so interesting in the here and now is when I look at what happened in 08, and your book elucidates, like really what happened on a personal level to so many individuals and families where, you know, their home foreclosed, they maybe tried to buy it back themselves, couldn't, end up renting it, end up paying a huge amount of rent, way, like, absurd amounts of rent as these private equity firms uh, and asset management firms are squeezing more profit out of that parcel of land, that unit, as they call them. Uh, and then if we, so we take that human misery, we take the economics of that for everyday families who are just struggling to make ends meet, pay that rent. Fast forward to 2020, a pandemic and an economic crisis. And is it surprising then that there are 40 million people in the United States who could, who could be facing eviction once the moratorium lifts, let's say, January 1st. Um, I mean, to me, the, there's such a direct line between what you describe as happening in the global financial crisis and thereafter and 2020. I feel like we have learned something, though. I feel like mm. all of our efforts have not been in vain. Uh, the CARES Act, which is the law that was passed in March, that uh, allowed uh, people with government-backed mortgages to go into forbearance, to basically put off their payments if they lost their job because of COVID. That did not exist 
in the 2008 crisis. Uh, there are eviction protections, starting with the CARES Act, going into the executive order uh, from the president uh, that expires at the end of the year, uh, many local governments with eviction protections. Uh, if your landlord takes advantage of one of these government forbearance programs on their mortgage, they have to pass relief on to you, the tenant, uh, which is really hard to find out what your landlord's mortgage is. It's kind of a disaster if you're a tenant. But these protections did not exist in 2008. Yeah, we're in a much better situation with a bigger financial crisis. So that's good. Sure. But the protections are in place. I mean, my point was because people were living, are living such on the edge now, and they're living such on the edge in large part because they're paying astronomical rents, whereas wages stagnate or remain pretty stagnant. And so I mean, it's great, and I'm not trying to to say that these new measures um, put in place aren't amazing in light of what could have happened, um, but they're necessary because of the precarity that so many millions of Americans are living in across the whole country, right? I was just talking to this woman yesterday. Uh, she lives in Oakland, California, in East Oakland, uh, which is a working class African-American neighborhood. And she uh, is a child care provider. And she lost her home uh, in the foreclosure crisis in 2012. And uh, her, her home was bought by a speculator. And she's been spending the last eight years now renting from uh, a series of corporate landlords as the house that she lives in has been traded. First, it was bought by this company called Waypoint, which is a local company, gobbled up by Tom Barrick's firm, uh, then traded to Blackstone, leveraged with a $500 million loan by Deutsche Bank. So uh, these big private equity firms are basically doing the same thing homeowners were accused of before the financial crisis, which is using houses as a piggy bank, right? And in the meantime, her rent is going up and up and up. So she's paid, I mean, I did a back of the envelope calculation, $200,000 in rent over the last eight years. So imagine instead if she had somehow been able to hold on to the house and pay $200,000, she would own the house free and clear now. And so now with the uh, coronavirus pandemic, uh, she has lost her job as a child care provider. People are not sending their kids to child care now because they're worried about the virus. Um, she has nothing to fall back on. She has no savings because she's been giving her paycheck to these private equity firms. If she owned her house, she would have security. Um, and that is what's missing right now, exactly what Leilani was saying. Exactly, exactly. Oh, that's a terrible story. I feel I feel very terrible, actually. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you where we're at here in California is what she said to me when I asked her how she's doing. She said, I feel very blessed because nobody in my immediate family has died of the coronavirus. Um, so, I, I, but I feel like we are so under siege right now. We're so under siege that somehow we, we, it's hard to even dream of what the world should look like. Mm. And this is America 2020. Very sad story. Going back to New York City, Park Avenue, there is a building where some guys are living almost like in a commune. They are sharing in the spaces. Tell us about the 
the Park Avenue gang. Yeah, one of the things that really struck me, well, this, this, my whole book, Home Wreckers, started because I found this house in South Los Angeles um, that had been owned by this African American family uh, for 50 years until they lost it to a predatory mortgage during the housing bubble in a foreclosure by Steve Mnuchin's bank. And I visited the house, and the tenant who was living there at the time, Sean Pruitt, was dying of cancer and AIDS and facing a rent increase by his corporate landlord. Uh, and as I tracked this one property, there had been five different members of Donald Trump's inner circle, Steve Mnuchin, Tom Barrick, Steve Schwartzman, the founder of Blackstone, Joseph Auding, who was Donald Trump's chief bank regulator, and Jamie Dimon, the head of the biggest bank in America, J.P. Morgan Chase. They had all personally profited off of this one family's pain. I couldn't believe it. Uh, and then I found another woman, Sandy Jolly, who's the main character of my book, who also lives in Southern California, had the same experience but fought back and won a whistleblower settlement. And when I started to background these profiteers, I realized that they all lived in the same small section of Upper Manhattan. And four of the players in the book even lived in the same building uh, at 740 Park Avenue, which has been called the world's richest apartment building. And so when you talk about a co-op, some you know of your listeners may be thinking like, oh, it's kind of like a commune uh, where everyone puts in a little bit of labor or it's some kind of affordable housing. Uh, I lived in an apartment co-op at one point in my life and had really low payments because it was owned by a nonprofit. It was great. That's not this. <laughs> uh, Steve Schwartzman bought his apartment for $20 million, and it goes over two stories uh, of the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And uh, Steve Mnuchin, poor Steve, he is like only on the, I think, the seventh and eighth floor of this building uh, and, and doesn't world. have the breathtaking view of Central Park that his upstairs neighbor Schwartzman had. Uh, and uh, John Thane, uh, who was uh, the head of Merrill Lynch during the housing bust, he's the guy who eventually bought the bank that Steve Mnuchin ran uh, for $3.4 billion after Mnuchin had gotten all these subsidies for foreclosing on people. And Thane also lived in this building. And so, uh, and you know, of course, Jamie Dimon living just down the street. Uh, and so it just, uh, it just seemed like, you know, is there a conspiracy here? Um, maybe, but it just seems more like they're in this club together, right? It's a well-connected well boys club. Oh, my God. I do have to just say this one thing, which is uh, Steve Schwartzman had the head of Blackstone had this very famous birthday party, his 60th birthday party during the apex of the Great Recession uh, at the Park Avenue Armory, which many people thought was very bad form since the, people were losing their homes. And yet he had this giant birthday party at uh, this armory where lots of famous people came, including uh, Donald Trump and uh, his new then new wife, uh, Melania. I, I actually read about uh, Steve Schwartzman's 70th birthday party because that oh. was down in his property in Mar-a-Lago in Florida, oh, where he's, he's also a neighbor with Donald Trump also there. Yes, he is. And he, he spent around $20 million for the birthday party? Yes, he had Chinese acrobats. Did you have Chinese acrobats at your birthday party <laughs> and a fireworks show? And 
No, and 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 you know his birthday party, like getting to the club, the club, uh, the club aspect of this. Uh, this happened. The seventieth birthday party happened right after Trump was elected, and who was at his birthday party? Steve Mnuchin was at his birthday party. Jared Kushner was at his birthday party. Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, who we haven't talked about yet, but he also did all the same things that Mnuchin did, but with at a different bank in Florida. They were all at the birthday party. And as you mentioned, um, birthday party right at Schwartzman's Four Winds Estate, right down the street from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club. So in New York, they're right down the street or even in the same building as each other. And in uh, Florida, the same thing, right? Although now Mnuchin and Ross and, and Trump, they have something new in common, which is that now they all live in Washington as well. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's what I was. That's exactly where I was going to take this. Um, I take quite seriously the political power that these folks have and have have tried to use, you know, human rights law in whatever way I can to 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 highlight the political power, um, in particular that Schwartzman has. Um, and I mean, I think it's so interesting. You know, your book focuses on Mnuchin to some degree, and now he's the sec- the uh, treasury secretary and he's making the decisions i assume about who's getting bailed out during this pandemic period and i mean i think what was it there were trillions of dollars um in your bailout and i don't know how much went to corporates uh 500 billion i think and you know who's overseeing that well he is Exactly. Great. You know, I will say this: the, the 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 all of this bailout that Mnuchin is overseeing, it has been a lifesaver for the real estate industry. Um, oh, there great. has that's been record <laughs> buying of uh, debt. Right, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department have been buying up crazily all of these mortgage-backed securities. So when you heard uh, Joseph Stiglitz talk earlier about how the U.S. government, um, you know, we famously allowed uh, some of these banks to fail. Uh, then we bailed out other ones that were so-called too big to fail. Uh, this time, they're just buying the debt straight up, right? And so we are on the hook now. We, the government, are on the hook. If any of these mortgages go bad, again, like they did last time, we own the underlying debt, Right. So the immediate effect all of this is to stabilize real estate prices. So if you're like me and you're a regular homeowner in the United States and you live in your home and you have a mortgage, this is good news because my house is worth it. Despite the fact that we're in a global economic calamity right now, my house is worth about the same as it was six months ago. Right. And if the government and the the stock market is doing fine. So if you have money, it's it's golden days. But if you don't have money, you suffer more than ever. Yes, although in this case, you know, two-thirds of Americans are homeowners. And for most people like myself, we don't own stock, and our primary asset is our home. So this is a lifesaver for um, for people like me. It's also a lifesaver for Blackstone and similar companies. Um, and so uh, the real question is, what happens, what happens if— the crisis goes on and the unemployment rate remains high people like me 
lose their jobs, run out of their savings, we will be forced to sell. And then companies like Blackstone will be able to come in and buy. That's, I think, what people are concerned about. So if the economy turns around, if the pandemic magically disappears, like our president says it will, then then all of these temporary measures will have really helped middle class families a lot, right? But if the economy continues to go down, the fact that my property continues to be worth a decent amount of money does not help me if I can't pay my mortgage. And so that, and so that is what we have to be concerned about. Schwarzman, quite early in the pandemic, said in an interview that Blackstone are sitting on $1.5 trillion in dry powder. And I think that's like, you know, the, the dry powder, we should probably get a bit scared when they say so. They, they are sitting on tons of money and they're just waiting to shop when it's, it's good. They're not going to buy now uh, when uh, real estate prices are still stable. Uh, they're going to buy when we are when we are suffering. So that's where you get into this dry powder. What they're doing now is marshalling their money. They're getting ready to buy big when we are feeling the most pain because, you know, buy low, sell high, right? That's what they like to do. So we just had the news that we were talking about earlier that Blackstone uh, has dipped uh, $300 million may sound like a lot to some people, but for Blackstone, it's like them dipping their pinky finger in, right? Um, (laughs) And so they're kind of testing the waters a little bit uh, and they're wondering, uh, you know, will they be able to profit like they did last time. Uh, They're looking for their opportunities. uh, But again, because the financial markets are still stable, their ability to make a ton of money spending that dry powder is not yet there for them. So they just hold it all. They keep it dry. uh, But they're just waiting. Yeah. Yeah. And And this is the story that you can see in Push is also that Blackstone entered into the housing market in end of 2011, early 2012. And they are not the biggest landlord on the planet, but they started like four years after the, 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 the big crisis. So you're totally right. We should probably be aware now. And that's why it's a good thing for us is that there is some time to, to raise this issue and talk about it. Because, and that's why you are doing your book, Home Records, and we are doing uh, Push to Film, and now the Pushback Talks. That we, I think we all need to know more and we we need to get a better language to to be able to fight back yeah we do have time we have some time because they're waiting for things to get bad and we have an opportunity for them not to get so bad you know the the cares act and the other protection measures that uh that they have passed uh leilani is right they don't really solve anything but they buy us some time that's right right which is a luxury we didn't have it if we had done some of these basic protection measures uh, in 2008, we would have bought ourselves some time, and maybe it wouldn't have gotten that bad. But what we see now in Congress in the states, as as everyone knows, is gridlock. And so they're not using the time to come up with permanent solutions, which is what we need. Mm-hmm. That's one of the, th- I'll just say, that's one of the things I've been working on here in Canada, is to use this time to encourage the national level government that does have some liquidity itself to move in and immediately start buying any assets it can buy to try to prevent 
the big private equity asset management firms, et cetera, they're all operating in Canada as well um, to, to prevent them from swooping in. But then to do the right thing with those assets, to get the government to actually do the right thing, which is to create deeply affordable housing for people who most need it. And I've heard the government of Canada is moving in that direction, an acquisitions direction, but we'll see. Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, action that can be taken at every level of government. So here in California, I was telling you yesterday, Lani, that there's a bill passes on our governor's desk right now. And uh, it doesn't provide any money for any acquisitions, but it slows down the foreclosure process. So under this bill that's on Governor Gavin Newsom's desk, there would be a 15-day window after a foreclosure where if some speculator like Blackstone came in and tried to buy at rock bottom, that the homeowner would have 15 days to match it. And you might say, well, if the homeowner can't afford their mortgage, how could they afford to buy the house at the auction? Well, because one thing we learned at the last crisis, is the prices can be so low at the auction that, that, that the homeowner might be able to get their house back at a lower price, right? And so that that is part of it. And then a second thing is if the homeowner is not able to do that, then there would be a 45-day window where a local government or a nonprofit can come in, and then they could try to match or exceed what the private equity firm was offering. And of course, they need a little bit longer window because, uh, you know, whereas Blackstone can just come in with a cashier's check, they actually need to line up some financing. So we need to be talking about our system of finance and what kind of financing is available to local governments, to nonprofits, to uh, former homeowners at risk, to tenants who want to buy their building. Um, and uh, because, as Professor Stiglitz said, you know, these private equity firms, they're also operating on borrow money. They're not actually, they're, they're taking that dry powder that Frederick was talking about and they're leveraging it to the tune of billions of dollars. Well, maybe we could at least get a loan of a couple thousand dollars to help us out when we need it. Yeah. One, I mean, you have an election coming up and, and of course, many of us are like scared of Trump, you know, so of course we prefer Biden to win. But you can also see that the big money, they, they're they investing everywhere. And I saw that the Blackstone man you were about to meet in New York that got canceled the last moment, you see that in the film, John Gray. He is obviously supporting the Democrats. And there's also a third man from Blackstone also supporting, one of the leaders also supporting uh, Biden. So it, it seems like they are also they want to buy into a, a new possible uh, uh, administration. So they, it's like, so I guess they do that because they also want the new administration to do it their ways, because we should remember that everything that happened now since the 2008 crisis was under Obama. So Obama was actually the president who gave everything away to, to Blackstone and the other guys. For me, this is scary because it means that politics can almost be the same. I mean, even if you different kind of uh, figureheads on the top. How do you see that, Leilani? <laughs> I don't understand at all how um, all of this stuff plays out in the U.S., like campaign monies and et cetera. I, um, I would imagine that uh, it's good politics for Blackstone and others to be courting a variety of political actors. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't you do that if you were them? I would. These guys, the, the particular people that we're talking about, Steve Mnuchin, Tom Barrick, 
uh, Steve Schwartzman, uh, they are vulture capitalists, right? They want to buy the undervalued asset as cheap as possible and then sell it for a ton of money. That is their business. So in 2016, they saw a real opportunity um, in Donald Trump. The whole financial sector was behind Hillary. They were all giving Hillary their money. Wall Street was backing Hillary. But there was a small group of Wall Street people, uh, Tom Barrick, Steve Mnuchin, Wilbur Ross, uh, John Paulson, who famously bet against the housing market um, when we were all suffering and made a ton of money. And they saw in Trump another dark horse that they could they could support. So Mnuchin, I was talking earlier, he gave money to Kamala Harris. He gave money to a lot of Democrats. Uh, but he also said, hey, I'm going to get in on the ground floor of Donald Trump's campaign for president. He became the finance director of the Trump campaign in 2016. Uh, the very first big fundraiser for Trump in 2016 was organized by Steve Mnuchin at Tom Barrick's house in Los Angeles. So they went in big on Trump because of the club aspect, but also because, you know, he was able to parlay that into Treasury Secretary. He could have never been Hillary Clinton's Treasury Secretary. So um, now we have a new dynamic. Donald Trump is uh, now he's the incumbent president. Um, we've all seen how uh, crazy the Trump presidency has been and unpredictable. So there are certain Wall Street actors who think that they can game the Trump presidency really well. Uh, but as you mentioned, uh, you know, the Obama-Biden administration was not hostile to these interests at all. It was during that time that they were able to amass all this housing. And so, um, so I think that they're in kind of a win-win situation a little bit. Uh, no matter who wins, I think they're pretty well set up. Mm -hmm. That's sad. Uh Aaron Leilani, today, when we are publishing this episode, it's the 25th of September. I know you listeners are probably listening days after, but, but the 25th is also the, the day of the release of PUSH in the U.S. It's been halted by this, this pandemic, and we are late, and it will all be digital screenings for the safety of all, but it will be available all over the U.S., and you should support your local theater by buying it through your theater. So this is like... Well, I think this film and your book could be a, an important part of the debate in the U.S. I mean, the whole issue should be really high up, or maybe it already is. How do you how do you see that? I think that uh, everything is being eclipsed by our current uh, catastrophe. But when you ask people how are they doing, I mean, their ability to stay in their home, whether they're a homeowner or a tenant, is really top of the list. And people are in tremendous financial pain, and they know what happened in 2008, and they're worried that it will happen again. And uh, I was just looking at the numbers yesterday. There are three and a half million Americans right now who are in uh, forbearance on their mortgage, so they can't pay. Three and a half million. And they're able to do this legally because of the steps the government had taken. So this means that the next administration is going to come in and they're going to inherit all of these people who, who can't pay. And they're going to have to decide what is going to be the permanent solution to this. And so uh, having you know, your film come out uh, in this moment where we're trying to decide what happens next, 
um, is really important. And uh, and also, one thing I liked, I was just re-watching your movie last night uh, in preparation for this interview, is, of course, it was great to see people doing things that we can't do now, like going to cafes and talking to <laughs> Leilani. Um, but, uh, and like, she went into all these people's homes, and now we would have to wear a mask, and we might not even go. So that was just heartwarming. But uh, also, just to know that, like, you know, when this virus passes, or when the worst of it passes, we will be back in that situation. And so we need to be armed with this information. So we should wrap. Uh, thank you very much, Aaron Glantz, uh, writer of Homewreckers. You can find the, the book on Harper's. I wouldn't say go to Amazon because I prefer you go to the, the bookshop or the bookshops, your bookshop's internet store. So we, I mean, we don't have to dis destroy the local book market also, but I mean, we all want people to, to read your book. And and uh, and to watch Push the Film. Push the Film is you can find it on our website pushthefilm.com. And I guess your book is. Do you also have a website for your book? Uh, yeah, you the people can go to a glance, which is a g l a n t z uh, dot com. Uh, but it's it's you can also just find it by by Google, and I'm sure people can find your movie by Google. And I'm so happy uh, to see. I saw that the movie is opening uh, first in San Francisco, which is my hometown, uh, and I was just. Uh, I'll just tell all my friends to go see it uh, in the theater from their house. That's, That's good. Right. Also in, in Los Angeles, Chicago, Minneapolis, New York, many other cities around the country. And you can always ask for the film in the, wherever you are based. And you can also organize your own screenings of the film in your, I mean, digital screenings uh, with your friends and your, your uh, organizations. Or your city, if you're a mayor of a city, for example, you can organize screenings. This has happened in many countries around the world uh, where city planners, uh, architects, and uh, people use the film to talk about these issues. And hopefully we'll also be able to use your book, Aaron. Leilani, you have, you have the closing yeah. of this show. I wanted to add that we're going to do a, several post-screening panels uh, between the 25th of September and the 8th of October. So if you're li listening in real time, you can look for one of these panels and join the discussion because it's super important that we talk about the issues raised by both Homewreckers and PUSH and uh, get information out there and share what we know. It's pretty exciting. I'm, I'm super excited that PUSH is finally making it to the theaters in the U.S. Uh, I've always felt that this film will resonate with Americans in a real way um, because of the, the, the suffering that's so directly related to housing in that country. And uh, anyway, I'm super excited to see how it's received in the good old U.S. of A. That's good. Okay, so closing note. Find uh, Leilani Farah on Twitter, Frederick Gerton, Aaron Glantz on Twitter. Tweet about the, the film. Tweet about the home the home records uh, tweet about the pushback talks and subscribe tell your friends be good also we have a, a patreon which is a way of supporting the podcast because we are doing this without any money so you can actually go to patreon.com and you find pushback talks and you can actually be a friend a true friend by sending us like five dollars <laughs> or so we we love those five dollar bills so please come in <laughs> Leilani, it's time for you to walk the dog, I guess, or something, or? Something, something. Another cup of tea, maybe. Okay, I, I will not walk because I don't have a dog, but I will, I will get on my bike, you know what I will do. So, 
and then Malmo is also playing tonight, you know, so oh. that's the best. Oh, don't stand between Frederick and his football. No. So, <laughs> anyway, take care and, and thank you very much. See you soon again. Thanks so much, Aaron, and thanks so much, Frederick. Ciao. Ciao.